On today's episode of The Press Box, baseball journalist and author Jason Turbo talks to us about a couple of his past books, including one covering the A's dynasty in the 1970s and the unwritten rules of baseball. It's a fun conversation. Can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get started. Welcome back to The Press Box. Today's episode, I'm very happy to have on the uh, the line with us today, author Jason Turbo. He has uh, written a couple of books about baseball, one about the unwritten rules of baseball, another one about the uh, Oakland Athletics in the 1970s. The book is called Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, Reggie Raleigh Catfish and Charlie Finley's Swinging A's. Uh, Jason, you were kind enough to send me a copy of that book. We'll talk about it in just a bit. It is amazing, but how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Moose. Is it is it raining where you are? Because I know you're over there in California. It's doing nothing but pouring down rain here. Man, it doesn't rain so much in the summer over here. We'd actually like a little bit more than we're getting. <laughs> well, uh, being over there in the Bay Area, I guess the first thing I want to cover with you is just kind of your baseball background. Did you grow up an A's fan, I'm assuming? No, I grew up a San Francisco Giants fan. Oh, wow. Uh, this, this A's story is, is strictly a, a, a passion for quality journalism and, and, and a great story to tell. This was this was an amazing team, which I knew kind of the, the loose parameters of growing up across the bay. But the more I dug into it, uh, the more I realized that this was a team that effectively single-handedly pulled baseball out of what we picture in the 1950s and directly into the sport we picture in the late 1970s, and and had unreal drama in the clubhouse. I mean, endless strings of fistfights with each other uh, underneath kind of a half-crazed owner who was, you know, simultaneously visionary and insane. And it would have been a great story had this been a last-place team, yet it's the only ball club other than the New York Yankees ever to win three straight championships. Yeah, the Oakland A's, uh, they, they've seemed to go through, they, they're always at the heart of when baseball seems to change. Uh, you know, they were there in the the early 70s. They had Catfish Hunter and stuff. Free agency is kind of what ultimately uh, helped dismantle that team, of course, with uh, Billy Bean later, years later on with Moneyball, they always seem to be there, kind of the, the crux of when the sport begins to change. Mm-hmm. What do you think that is? Well, I, it's tough. This was a, a perfect team for the pre-free agency era. Charlie Finley, the owner, was uh, a fabulous autocrat. When he was the one calling the shots, things ran really smoothly, at least in terms of of you know players sticking around and and doing what they were supposed to do in terms of winning baseball games, but the moment that that arbitration came around in 1974 and subsequently free agency a year later, and and Finley lost some grip on on the way his team was run. I mean, giving giving a say to an arbitrator over how much his players earned was was crazy to him. Uh, he refused to play by those rules. Uh, he, he he wouldn't give. The necessary contracts to his own homegrown players, and they all left. I mean, none, very few of them liked him to begin with. And then when he tried to lowball them across the board, they couldn't flee town quickly enough. And this this three straight this three straight championship team that won in 1972, 73, and 74, almost all of whom were under 30 years old, who easily could have won another three or four championships, just was dismantled almost overnight. Early on in the book, uh, I, I was reading, you were talking about uh, Charlie Finley, ne- always wanting to lowball the players, and how Vita Blue was such a draw. Um, you know, he's filling up stadiums uh, everywhere he went. And I, I, if I remember correctly, and you, you 
you can correct me, of course, if I'm wrong. He wanted somewhere in the neighborhood of what was it, eighty thousand dollars a year, and Charlie wouldn't go above fifty or fifty-five. Yeah, give or take. That's that's spot on. Uh, in 1971, Vita Blue, at, at, at age 21, became the youngest player ever to win the Cy Young or the MVP award, and he won them both in the same season. He was uh, truly a, a phenomenal pitcher uh, to the point where visiting teams, not visiting teams, but, but visiting cities, when the A's went to other cities around the country, those teams would hold Vita Blue promotion nights themselves. <laughs> and. And the one statistic that blows me away is that one out of every 12 tickets sold in the entire American League in 1971 was to see Vita Blue pitch. Let's put that in perspective today. The, this uh, A's team that won the, won the series three times in a row, like you said, 72, 73, 74, we've not really seen a team like that except the Yankees, really. most What, the late 90s, they won a bunch? I don't think they won three in a row then, though, did they? They won in yeah. They won three in a row in the late '90s, early 2000s, and they won five in a row in the late '40s and early '50s. But that was back when there were no playoffs to get through, and so so the A's actually won more consecutive playoff series than the great Yankees of the late '40s and early '50s. Uh, they, they, you know, it's, it's tough to debate which team is greater than which other team. They, they were all amazing teams, but but there's no denying that this this A's team was in a kind of uh, a rarefied air. Why don't you think we see teams like that nowadays? Well, free agency is a huge part of it. I mean, look look at those the most recent Yankees teams of the early 2000s. They won because they had this great group of homegrown players. And when when those players either aged or went to other teams, there was nothing left. Even with the, you know, the, the greatest buying power in all of baseball when it comes to free agency, even the Yankees can't keep it together that long. So unless you've got a, a core group of young players that are under team control for six years, like the Yankees had then at the beginning of their careers, it's, it's, it's next to impossible to keep a core like that together. Now, you've been writing about baseball for quite a little bit. And again, your, your latest book is uh, Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, Reggie, Raleigh, Canfish, and Charlie Finley, Swing and A's. And real fast, bef- before I get into this next part, you can find Jason on Twitter and Facebook. Just search at Baseball Codes. And uh, your website uh, is thebaseballcodes.com. Yeah, baseballcodes.com. I'm, I'm blogging constantly about uh, unwritten, unwritten rules issues as they crop up around baseball. And, and they crop up a lot, man. There's, a, there's, there's constant discussion of, of the, the moral code by which players police themselves and each other. Well, let, let's, let's talk about those unwritten rules uh, just for a second. You've, that, that was a book you, you wrote previously uh, a few years back, which I mentioned this to you before when we were getting this together, that it's, it's probably my favorite overall baseball book in general because you have all these stories uh the ones about nolan ryan in particular are always so entertaining and i had a chance to meet nolan and if and for people that might wonder how he is he's a nice guy but he still carries that intensity that's what it seemed like to me everywhere he went and the unwritten rules of baseball like you talked about are is this kind of moral code that players follow the kind of police themselves and you hear it brought up all the time that should be done away with where do you kind of stand on that? Do you think it's ever going to go away? Uh, I don't think it's ever going to go away. But, but I definitely understand the arguments, many of the arguments against it. I mean, I, I'm not an advocate for the unwritten rules so much as I am a chronicler of them. And, and one thing that has been true since the beginning of baseball is that you know, this, this unwritten rule book is a malleable thing. It, it evolves with time. You know, it's, it's as, as players enact 
you know, various tenets of, of the code, they they shift away. They 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 come into the fore. I mean, look look at um look at bat flipping. You know, ten fifteen years ago, uh, it was a viable response for a pitcher to drill a hitter who flipped a bat on him. And now it's just another thing that players do. I mean, most of the time it's not even it's not even noticed. So, I think in that sense, the evolution is really good. Um, one thing one thing the unwritten rules has going for it is it does allow kind of this release of steam on the field. Your team does something to my team. My pitcher responds in whatever kind of way, and it's over. Right? There's no more lingering bad blood. There's no more feuds. And you know sometimes things go a little off the rails. But generally speaking, it, it allows players to handle uh, policing on their own without intervention from the league or the umpires. And, and it tends to work very smoothly, and I appreciate it for that. You know, when you, when you talk about the unwritten rules, too, and, and the policing, one of the uh, something I, I kind of wonder if it correlates with is the one, one of the talks in baseball right now is there's no major like superstars that transcend the actual sport. I mean, you got you got Bryce Harper, who's actually an advocate for loosening up a lot of this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. You got guys like Mike Trout, who is arguably not just the best player in baseball right now, but if he stays on track, he'll be one of the best of all time. But the the question I have for you, Mike Trout. Is if, as far as I know, he respects the unwritten rules of baseball. Uh, because of that, he kind of keeps his head down. He does his business quietly. Do you think that kind of attitude with some of the players, the, the sports best players, are keeping them from rising to a point to really shine a national spotlight on on baseball? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I you definitely don't get any better than Mike Trout in the modern game. Uh, and and as an old school guy myself, I appreciate the fact he puts his head down and goes about his job. Uh, you know, some of these guys who who have the look at me attitude get the attention, yeah. But it's not necessarily for the right reasons. Uh, and you know, and, and you can go with the the theory that that there's no such thing as bad press, and if you're in the headlines, you're doing okay by yourself. Uh, but but. My own preference is for the guys who you know, who act like they've been there before and don't need to do the elaborate touchdown dance after they've scored, but you know, pass them all off to the to the referee and, and go on to the next play. You tweeted out something. Sorry to mix the football metaphor in there. <laughs> no, you're good, man. Uh, you tweeted out something uh, about a week, couple of weeks back. I noticed, and uh, being a Cardinals fan, I'm not going to lie, I detest the Cubs. I can't stand them. Um, it's probably how you feel about the Dodgers, I would assume. Uh, oh yeah, but. You, you you tweeted out something about Javi Baez getting getting really mad about the at what the pitcher was showing him up or the pitcher was celebrating even though Javi's like one of the worst when it comes to showboating. Well, yeah, this this is where we get into kind of the, the the tenuous area of the unwritten rules because effectively they're all about respect and you know respect your teammates, respect your opponents, respect the game, and I think everyone can agree on those things. But but suddenly you start perceiving disrespect in areas where no disrespect is intended, and and tempers can get a little hot. And when it comes to someone like Baez, who who plays joyfully, who is not shy about expressing celebration on the field, when someone like him calls out an opponent for for doing something similar to you know, the actions he himself does on the field, th- there can be some hypocrisy, and I think that's worth calling out. What's the most egregious thing you've seen lately? 
Uh, well, I just blogged about today, Hunter Strickland of, of my hometown Giants, you know, drilling a, a, a rookie on the Marlins for celebrating a, a game-tying base hit with a little bit of a bat flip. Uh, and that bat flip itself was probably in response to the fact that the Strickland threw a pitch up near his head earlier in that very at bat. Uh, and, and so, you know, what does Strickland do? Next time out, he drills the guy. And it, it, it did not end well. Strickland coughed up another save. He ended up punching out a, a clubhouse door and breaking his own pitching hand and is now lost for eight, six, six to eight weeks. Uh, and the Marlins responded by drilling Buster Posey. This is what I'm talking about when things go off the rails. You've got a guy who's not necessarily reading the unwritten rules appropriately, acting on his own, and, and it ends up costing everybody. And, and thankfully, Buster Posey wasn't hurt when he got hit, but the potential was there. You never want to put your teammates in danger. Uh, I, I think the most interesting part about this particular incident is that even though Strickland was pretty clearly in the wrong, he had his teammates sticking up for him. Um, you know, Mark Melanson, the, the closer, said in, 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 on the radio that this Marlins rookie was, was disrespecting the game, even though he, he pretty much wasn't. And actually, I, let me correct myself, it wasn't Strickland who, who drilled the kid. It was uh, Derek Rodriguez, the Giants starting pitcher the next day. And, and he stuck up for Strickland. And so you're going to get teammates sticking up for, for players they actually know are wrong, but they're all on the same team, they wear the same uniforms, and, and that's their duty. And, and as far as that goes, I can respect it. I saw where, um, and I, I'm going I'm to apologize because I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Braves pitcher comes back off the DL first day, has a no-hitter going. And I believe it was Michael Conforto, and uh, he hits with the Mets, and he breaks up the no hitter with an infield single. Now, is that this? Is that is that breaking an unwritten rule in of itself, or infield singles okay? Because I know, like Nolan Ryan, any kind of weak hit like that, he'd get very upset about, especially bunts. Well, yeah, for sure. Nolan Ryan's approach toward bunts is is its own story. Uh, generally speaking the first hit of a no-hitter has to be clean. You don't bunt to break up a no-hitter just because you know, the theory goes that it needs to be your best against the pitcher's best. If the pitcher has some historically epic performance going, don't beat him with a trick play. There's a couple caveats to this, of course. If it's a close game and you get aboard with a, with a bunt hit and you're the winning or tying run or close to it, more power to you. Winning trumps everything. Uh, you, you can get away with almost anything you know, celebration doesn't matter because that doesn't help you win or lose. But, but uh, tactics like bunting, you, you can do almost anything. Steal a base when you need to, as long as it leads to winning the game. Uh, the, the other qualifier is that if bunting is part of your game, if you're a speedy guy and you frequently get on base with a bunt, yeah, go, go to it. That's, that's what you do. Uh, the most famous example is Ben Davis. You know, back 15 years ago, breaking up Kurt Schilling's perfect game with a bunt, Davis was a catcher on the Padres. He'd never bunted in his life for a hit, but the Padres were, the, the Diamondbacks were playing him well back, knowing he wouldn't bunt. He plopped a bunt down, he reached base, and, uh, and, and mayhem ensued. I mean, there was a lot of discussion about whether he did the right thing. And uh, the most vocal person against him was Diamondbacks manager Bob Brenly, who, who spoke at length <laughs> for many years thereafter about what a rotten play it had been. You know, one of my uh, favorite stories too, and this will be the la this will be the last thing I, I, I kind of bring up about the your, your uh, book about the unwritten rules. And I, I saw this story as well in Ken Burns' baseball documentary. It's the one about Jason Grimsley, 
pulling off that Mission Impossible style thing to get rid of uh, Albert Bell's cork bat. Uh, see, those, those kind of that. annex, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that makes baseball so interesting to read about, to write about. But we don't ever see things like that anymore. Then it's it's, and I'm kind of curious if you have a an idea why maybe that is. Well, I think Jason Grimsley was a pretty unique situation. I don't know if I heard about that before before that situation uh, either. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think I think baseball players are are prone to hijinks uh, along those lines. It's a long season, and they spend a lot of time in ballparks uh, over the course of six months, looking for ways to amuse each other. And they've gotten really good at kind of hiding what they do from, from the press. Clubhouses are, are now closed, you know, pregame for, for far longer than they used to be. I mean, back when I started as a sports writer, you could, you could be in a clubhouse almost right until first pitch. And now it's locked down, you know, an hour, hour and a half before. Um, it, it's a good question. Uh, do you think maybe in, we in just the, in, the long, in long history of the game, I, I, I think these guys – haven't continued to to do all kinds of you know knuckleheaded things, um, partly because unlike other sports, many of them come right from high school. They they never get it's not only a college education, but they they never get socialized into society by anybody but other baseball players, and and this is how they learn to be adults. <laughs> uh, if you ask me, it'd probably be a pretty good way to do it. Did you ever play baseball when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I played as a kid. Yeah, me too. I, but my... but not, not not much beyond that. My high school, my high school coach told me once. He said, "He said, Moose, I'm just going to tell you, you can hit the ball hard. You got a lot of power. You can't run. You can't defend. You can't hit consistently. So you should probably just stop." <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, "Thanks, man." <laughs> That's um, a life lesson about knowing when to cut bait, though, right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> We've been uh, talking with Jason Turbo here again. You can find him on Twitter and Facebook at Baseball Codes. His uh, website, thebaseballcodes.com. Uh, he's got a couple of books out. We've been talking about the uh, unwritten rules. Uh, the um, that's what it's, it's called. The Baseball Codes: The Unwritten Rules of Baseball, and uh, also his uh, latest book about the uh, Oakland Athletics from the 1970s: Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, Reggie Raleigh, Catfish, and Charlie Finley's Swinging A's. Uh, and that brings me to my last question for you, uh, Jason. I don't want to keep it too much longer. Dick Williams, uh, managers of that A's team, pretty hard nosed guy. Uh, and I, I know I've kind of been making calls back to the past. So why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? We really don't seem to have managers like him much anymore. You know, a lot of those hard nosed no. guys that could really get a team together, they just don't seem to exist. Mike Matheny with the Cardinals, uh, a lot of people call for his dismissal because he's too soft. Yeah, well, it's a player's league, you know. Uh, you you got a hard-edged guy like Dick Williams, uh, enough players rebel, he doesn't keep his job. I mean, e- even when he was calling all the shots in the early 70s, he had a number of players who kind of bristled under a, a very authoritarian rule from, from the manager's office, but there was nothing they could do about it then. Uh, these days, it's a whole different story. I mean, you can look at Dick Williams himself, who went on to manage uh, after the A's and got run out of town in, in San Diego uh, just because players couldn't take it, and it was a new era. It was suddenly the free agency era, and, and that, kind of, that kind of attitude just didn't fly like it used to. Well, we could use some more of that, uh, at, least, at least in baseball, I think. Because what was the, what was the uh, story in your book? I'm trying to remember what it was the players took. 
But he said the bus wouldn't leave till they brought it back. It was yeah. on an airplane. Oh, yeah. The catfish hunter stole a, a bullhorn off uh, one of the team flights that was landing in Milwaukee. And the stewardesses alerted Dick Williams about it before the team took off in their bus to go downtown. And he, he said, this bus is not leaving until that bullhorn is accounted for, using very colorful language. And his players knew that he meant what he said. And, and, you know, suddenly they heard it clatter on the pavement below. Hunter had dropped it out the window without letting on that, that it was him. And, uh, and that was actually the, the first real display of, of Williams' authority. He had just taken over the team, and it set a good tone. But I'll give you another story about Dick Williams. Um, back when he was a minor league manager in Toronto, he got in an argument with one of his players uh, that grew so heated they got into a fist fight. And that fist fight was so intense that Williams ended up soiling himself. <laughs> literally messed his own pants. But instead of reacting with embarrassment, he took the pants out into the clubhouse and held them aloft and said, if this is what it takes for our team to win, I will be wearing diapers. <laughs> and it showed his players exactly how serious he was. All right, that book again, it's uh, Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, Reggie Raleigh, Catfish, and Charlie Finley's Swingin' A's. Jason, thank you so much for uh, talking with me for a little while here today. Hey, great talking to you, Moose, anytime. Special thanks once again to Jason Turbo, his website, if you'd like to check out his books or his blog, thebaseballcodes.com. That's going to do it for this episode of The Press Box. Until next time, you drink a brewski for the mooski. I'm out.